Let's get going. I'm sure it was mentioned earlier, we've ta- been talking about it, but next week is our anniversary service with Josh McDowell. If you don't know who he is, literally sold tens of millions of books. Many of you have probably been influenced by him. His books have helped you come to the Lord. Um, but the big question is, why, why would such a big name come to little old Gilroy and Hollister? And it's because when I reached out to him, I told him that our anniversary service is coming up and that Saddleback would love to have him. My name is Rick Warren, and um, we'd, we'd be honored to have you. So when he comes in, and it's not as big of a church, just play it cool. We'll say it's an extension site. Um, today's this sort of in-between sermon between apologetics and our anniversary service. After our anniversary service, we'll start the book of Jonah, which is really, really cool. Like most of us, we read the book of Jonah. It's a little children's story. It's not a children's story. That book is a masterpiece. It's four chapters. Trust me, it's going to be good. But before that, we have this one-off sermon. And sort of what happened a couple years ago, it started to develop a tradition where I talk on issues of life on this Sunday, sort of as just a one-part series. And we're going to do that today. And what I mean by life is not just typically when you're at a church, a, a theologically conservative church, Um, when you mention issues of life, um, you're dealing with issues of the unborn. That's uh, issues of abortion. And that's part of of today. I want to address some of that stuff, but I want to deal much more than that. I want to talk about life for all people in all places at all times and life from conception to the grave all the way through. And what I want to specifically focus on are three segments of society that I think are some of the most vulnerable and in need of help and care that are the most neglected simultaneously. And so whenever you talk about life, you have to ground it in the first pages of the Bible, a phrase that many of you are familiar with, God creates human beings in the image of God. It's a very powerful statement. It's a radical statement. You should step back and reflect on it because the creation story found in Genesis is ultimately telling the story that human beings are the climax or the pinnacle of God's creation. So it's not the splendor of sun and star, or the majesty of moon and mountain that rank as the highest point in the story. It's day six creation of man, woman, made in the image of God. That's the high point of the story. So the question then arises, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Now, there's two parts to this. Uh, One has to do with value and one has to do with vocation. Most Christians are more familiar with the value portion of this, so we'll spend more time on the vocation. But briefly, what do I mean by being made in the image of God means every human life has a value and a vocation. The value has to do with the fact that because we're made in the image of God, we're unique, unique and distinct than the rest of creation. There is an inherent and intrinsic value to all human life. Human beings, by nature, have value. All human beings, black, white, Jew, Gentile, male, female, everyone has intrinsic, innate value by nature. Secondly, though, it has to do with... Um, we have value from an external source. When you talk about something having value by nature, we're talking about it internally having worth and value. But human beings also have value because of an external source. I'll give you an example. Now, my example is going bad, and it's leaving me broke because I started off with a 5 and a 20 in my wallet today, and I think I'm only left with 1s. Yeah, this isn't going to be a good illustration. 
Um, because a one dollar, you know, it ain't worth that much. And in California, it ain't worth that much. So we're going to pretend this bad boy is like a hundred, but it's really a one. So if I were to say like, Scott Jackson, do you want this hundred dollar bill? I'd be like, yeah, give it to me. In fact, there's some of you who are, yeah, Isaac, I know it's just a one dollar bill, but I want, give me the, okay. You're excited about the one dollar bill. Okay. Okay. We're going to, you weren't as excited about the one as she was. You've been cut off. We're going this way. Okay. So. So you want this $1 bill, but what if like I folded it, you still want it? Okay, what if I crumpled it up? What if, look at what about after this? You stupid dollar bill. <laughs> You're pathetic, no good, can't even buy a hamburger at In-N-Out. <laughs> you still want it? Okay. So, here, so I wish it was a $100 bill. This church would be, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed back. I'm going to feed back. There you go, the $1 bill. Now, why does she still want it, okay? Because it still has value. There's an external source that has declared that dollar bill to have value. The United States government is the authority and has declared that piece of paper to have value. So it holds that value, even if it's crumpled up. Even if I talk down to it, it maintains the value. Human beings likewise have value by nature, inherently, intrinsically, it's bound up who they are, but then also God as the external source and authority says human beings have value. So we say all people in all places at all times, despite form or function, old, young, black, white, male, female, doesn't matter, value. Vocation has to do with being made in the image of God. For some of you who are with us during our Exodus series, this, this will be a little bit more familiar. But in the ancient world, the Pharaoh was called the image of God. He was the only image of God. Not all Egyptians were made in the image, just Pharaoh. And as the image of God, Pharaoh was supposed to have dominion over Egypt. And he was supposed to execute the will of the Egyptian gods, specifically Amnu-Ra, whose image he bears. He's supposed to execute the will of the Egyptian gods in Egypt as they do in the heavenlies. So part of what it means to be made in the image of something in the ancient world is you have the vocation or job to do the will of the gods. In Christianity, though, all people have been made in the image of God. In other words, all human beings have been given the authority and job description and vocation to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Additionally, in the ancient world, leaders who claimed to have the image of God would set statues or images of themselves all throughout their empire. So in the Roman world, Caesar would put statues of himself up all around so that even if you weren't in Rome, you were still made aware Caesar's image is here, and that means Caesar's will is done here. Caesar's the authority here. One Caesar by the name of Domitian put a giant statue of himself on the shores of Spain. That's why? So that when people are coming in from the ocean, they know, make no mistake about it, as soon as they step foot on that sand, they're in Caesar's land. And in Caesar's land, Caesar's will is done. So this idea comes out. Human beings are made in the image of God. They have value and worth, but additionally, they are given the job of managing and having dominion over 
the earth and the way they are to manage and have dominion and exercise authority is a way that should reflect the will and purposes of God in heaven. It's another illustration. Think of a, uh, a mom and dad who buy a home. And they're not the type of mom and dad that just roll with ones in their wallet. They, they bought their house cash, man. Cash. It helps the illustration because otherwise it gets funky because it's like, well, you don't really own the house. The bank does. I know. <laughs> I know. But let's say they buy it cash and they have children and they raise these children. At a certain age, these children reach a maturity where they begin to use language like this. Go to your room. Go clean your room. Now, mom and dad know full well that that room technically isn't theirs. Now, the child, especially in this kind of de- developmental, developmental uh, stage, developmental, so I can't say it right, I know what I'm saying, um, called the teenage years, adolescence, they actually may begin to think that that room is in fact theirs completely. Like mom and dad have no right or access to it. But like, make no mistake about it. Like, no, no, you've been given this room. You've been delegated. You've been handed this room. We're going to call it your room, and we're going to give you the ability to manage it and have dominion over it. But at any good time, man, you got to be certain. Mom and dad could come and take this back. You can be sleeping with, with brother, you know. What's going on? The child, in the image of mom and dad, have been given a role and responsibility, and they've been given a sphere to exercise dominion, to exercise management. Now, part of the rules are this. This is yours, so as long as you manage and have dominion in this sphere in a way that reflects the will of mom and dad. And if you don't do in your room what mom and dad wants you to do, there is consequence, trouble. This is what's playing out in the Genesis narrative. The image bearers are given dominion precisely because they're image bearers to manage and to govern and to bear authority on earth in a way that reflects the glory and goodness of God who is in heaven. That's why it's, it's clear in the scriptures, but it's easy to miss. Whenever God talks about the image, it's followed by having dominion. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. You get image and then dominion. So, we have a sacred task. We have a holy responsibility as image bearers, not only to value all human life, but to rule and to manage and govern and express dominion in a way that reflects the heart of God. Now, when you look at the scriptures, God's heart is concerned with the hurting, the broken, the needy, the orphan, the widow, the oppressed. He's concerned about injustice. So if you're going to be a proper image bearer, you want to have eyes to see these things. And what I want to talk about today are the three segments of society that I think are possibly the most neglected. And it's weird because we live in a a hyper virtue signaling culture. Everyone wants to talk about this person's broken or needy and we need help here and and there's this injustice here and this injustice there and everyone wants to virtue signal, talk about how they care, but in reality they just care when they're online and tweeting about it. But very few people are actually getting their hands dirty caring about things. And they're not caring about the things that are actually happening to what I believe are the most vulnerable people in our culture. 
And one of them is going to be obvious. The other two aren't as obvious. We'll get to them in a moment. But probably top three, if not the top three, top five, most vulnerable, susceptible to hurt, pain, suffering, and injustice people in our society and culture, the unborn, the unparented, and the unfriended. We'll get to all of those in a moment, but first we'll tackle this unborn thing, unborn one. I want to be sensitive here. Whenever you talk about the unborn and abortion, you have to realize there's a wide range of people in this room. There's some people who would never think of having an abortion. There are some people who have thought about having an abortion or who would think about having it, and some people who have had an abortion. We've, we're all interacting with this in different ways, so I want to be sensitive to that. But I want you to know that historically, the church has always believed that all human beings bear the image of God and that babies in the womb bear the image of God and thus have value and inherent, intrinsic, worth and purpose by nature. So right now, we're at a particular space and time where we're arguing whether or not babies in the womb are human. And this doesn't prove anything right or wrong. I just want to show you something that has taken place historically. And historically, whenever a people group isolate a portion of their population and take that segment and then dehumanize it, take away the image bearing, take away the humanity mark, what usually happens is something horrific that decades later people look back and say, how could we have ever let this occur? So... In 1858, Virginia Supreme Court, in the eyes of the law, the slave is not a person. It's not a person. 1881, American Law Review, an Indian is not a person within the meaning of the Constitution. 1928, Supreme Court of Canada, the meaning of a qualified person does not include women. 1938, German Supreme Court, the Reichsgericht itself refused to recognize Jews as persons in the legal sense. 1997, Supreme Court of Canada, the law of Canada does not recognize the unborn child as a legal person possessing rights. Now, what you'll notice in all of these first cases, the slave, the American Indian, the woman, and the Jew all get dehumanized. There's, there's a, a human robbing to this. There's a not image-bearing any longer. And what usually happens subsequent to that is horrific. Because when somebody isn't uniquely human, you could treat them differently than what's worthy of a human. And so right now what's taking place is the argumentation for a dehumanization of children in the womb. And this isn't a sermon that's going to cover all the, the logical and moral reasoning on why the church has historically held this position. Um, but I do want to just briefly t- talk about some of the things that you'll hear often, because there's often arguments that are made in attempt to demonstrate that that which is in the womb is not human. Sometimes there's talk of levels of development, talks of environment or location or levels of dependency. And just briefly, though, you can see with, with some, some just consistent reasoning, most of these arguments don't hold up. So, for instance, the levels of development. A child in the womb is not a human because it hasn't reached full development. It hasn't developed into a full-functioning human being. You could see at first, oh, yeah, okay, well, because no one really knows the line when something is a fully developed human being, so maybe we should just mark it at birth. The problem with that is that an infant hasn't reached full human development. It's not fully developed. 
A one-year-old is not fully developed. Oh, and by the way, what happens to people with disabilities or special needs who do not ever develop some of the normal capabilities that the rest of the population has? Are they somehow less human or subpar to Imago Dei image of God? So where you're at in your development should not determine your humanity. The infant isn't human, fully developed. The two-year-old isn't. And some of us, some of y'all got some teenagers <laughs> still ain't. And in a, in, a, in a funny sense, a teenager isn't, actually. Sometimes arguments of environment or location are made. So um, the baby is not a human life while it's still inside of the womb. The problem is, is that's not how, how you talk about things by nature. So, for instance, if I have a football, whether it's thrown in the air, the football's in my car, or it's still in its packaging at Walmart, the football by nature is still a football independent of its environment or location. So, whether or not a baby is in a womb or not has no bearing upon what it is by nature. It has bearing on what it is in relationship to its location, but not what it is by nature. So this is where it gets tricky, too, because you can have a nine-month-old baby still in the womb and a five- to six-month-old premature baby born outside of the womb. And one is maybe more developed than the other, but what determines the humanity? Sometimes arguments of degrees of dependency are talked about where um, the child is completely dependent upon its mother's mother for survival. So until it's reached independence, it is not a fully developed human possessing the rights of all humans. The problem with degrees of dependency is that, once again, um, an infant is still 100% dependent upon its parents for survival. A one-year-old is. Oh, and by the way, what happens to people who get in accidents, who are now 100% dependent upon machines to care for them? Are they somehow less human? And if you think this is crazy talk, you need to know that right now in the upper echelons of the academic world and the cultural wars, discussions about the termination of people with disabilities or who are elderly or who are experiencing certain amounts of pains, that we could just go ahead and ease their burden and ease their burden upon society, which if you know your history sounds really familiar. Christians have historically believed that the second human life begins at conception, that there's a image-bearing person there. Full DNA, it's all there. And it will continue to develop and become less dependent, but just because something is dependent or developing does not mean they are somehow less image-bearing. And so because of that, the church, since day one, since its inception, has always believed in this issue of life for the unborn. It's not a new thing. Oftentimes we think this issue is new or it's new because of politics or technology. It's been around forever. There was ways to have abortions thousands of years ago. It was drink this, eat this, do this procedure. This is a document from the end of the first century called the Didache. It's an early Christian document and it says this, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not corrupt boys, do not fornicate, do not steal, do not practice magic, do not go in for sorcery, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. The phrase, do not murder a child by abortion in Greek, euphunesis technon and flora is a Greek euphemism. Because it was so common, they had euphemistic ways of talking about this. 
So you, you don't do that. Christians don't do this. It's a first century Christian document. What comes after that is something even scarier. Or kill a newborn infant. When you kill a newborn infant, it's called infanticide. And so um, infanticide was quite common in the Roman world. If you had a baby and you didn't want it anymore, you would go into the night, typically in the night in the countryside, and you abandon the baby to be killed by exposure, animals, dehydration, or starvation, or be picked up by slave traders or brothel owners. By the way, what subgroup of the unborn do you think God abandoned the most? Baby girls. This is a document from a Roman soldier writing back to his wife. And he says, Know that I am in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. And as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it up to you. If you are delivered before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. In the night, you go out to the countryside and you abandon your baby to the animals, to exposure, dehydration, starvation, or the traffickers or slave traders. How did the Christians respond? How did the first Christians react to this? The first Christians went out into the night, into the darkness, and listened for the cries of the hurting. Do you hear what I'm saying? The first Christians went into the darkness and listened for the cries of those in need. And when they heard the cries, they went. And they would adopt these children. They would take them in as their own, and they would say, even though your parents may have abandoned you, we're your mom and dad. We have adopted you into our family precisely because we were orphans too. And our heavenly father adopted us as orphans, invited us to his table, brought us into his house, and called us sons and daughters. You see the logic of this. So from day one, Christians have always cared about this. And this is why as a church, we support some of the local organizations who are developing their time, money, and energy to this. There's one in Gilroy and Hollister, and Gilroy's Informed Choices and Hollister's Hollister Pregnancy Center. And these are organizations that care for women who are expecting, care for women who have just given birth, who may need formula or resources, clothes. They care for women who are wrestling with some of the pain and trauma of, of abortion, people who are just wanting information or a shoulder to cry on. And so we support them. We're glad that many of you support them. One of them has an event coming up, Informed Choices in Gilroy. You can go to informed-choices.com to get more info about that. But they're on the front lines of caring for, for women in some of these very, very difficult times and situations. So that's the unborn. I want to talk about the unparented. It's kind of a term. I know it's not a real word. I just made it up. But I'm specifically talking about um, children who have had their parents die or have had their parents abandon them or who have had parents be so bad that the state saw fit to remove children from their home. And I want to be sensitive to this one as I move forward because our church has a great culture of adoption and foster care. We have many foster kids. We have many adopted kids. We have families who are doing this. I'm proud of that. But oftentimes when you go over the harshness of 
this. It, it can hit people in different ways, especially if you're a foster kid, or especially if you were adopted, um, or especially if you're a foster parent and your, your kid's acting out of line and you want everything you do to make him to, to, to do good and you just, it's falling apart. So some of these stats are gonna be scary, but I wanna deal with the harshness and reality of evil, but I also wanna comfort you because stats are just stats. And if you're feeling like, oh, wow, that's my future. I'm one of these stats. That's how I'm gonna end up. You need to know that this room is filled with people who should have been statistics. This room is filled with people who should be statistics. I don't know everyone's story in this room, but I know enough stories that some of you outside the grace of God would be absolute train wrecks. And I mean that. Without the grace of God, you would be absolute train wrecks. And there's horror stories in this room. Bad childhood, bad upbringing, broken marriages. But I can tell you, because of the grace of God, this room is filled with people who are managing, who are getting by, somehow putting one foot in front of the other. Stats are just stats. We serve a God who exists to tell the stats they're inaccurate. So we want to do both, show comfort and grace and say stats don't determine the future, but we also want to acknowledge evil and call evil evil and point out suffering wherever it may appear. So when kids lose parents, abandoned by parents or are taken from parents and have to grow up in the foster system, a number of things occur. First off, they are more likely to be sex trafficked. There was a giant uh, sex trafficking raid done by the FBI in 2013, and after they rescued all the kids and took them out of the sex trafficking, they found that 60% of those kids were from the foster care system. Because when there's not a mom and dad, whether it's biological or not, that's, that's irrelevant for my, for my discussion, whether there's not someone who's functioning as a mom and a dad in your life to protect you, you're vulnerable. You're some of the most vulnerable. 70% of California prison inmates spent time in the foster care system. Now that's bad enough, but there's some of you who are mathematically inclined and you already went to the next step. Wait, wait, 70%, that's a lot. But that 70% is being made up of what? One, two, three, four, five percent of the population? How much of the American population is made up of foster kids? Two, three percent? So you have two, three, four, five percent of your population making up 70% of the population of prison inmates. That's harsh. And by the way, if your parents abandoned you, you might have anger problems too. And if you don't have a mom and a dad and you have anger problems and you're going from place to place, you might get yourself in trouble. And so the next time you're tempted to look down upon someone because they got a past, you don't know where you'd be without the grace of God in your life. 71% of girls who age out of the foster care system will be pregnant by 21. 33% who age out will be homeless upon aging out. 50% of those who age out will develop a controlled substance addiction by the age of 24. You don't got a mom or dad to tell you they love you? 
You've been abused and neglected. Do you think you might turn to a substance to help you cope with the pain a little bit? You don't get to look down upon people, man. You don't know their story. And what does the Bible have to say about caring for the unparented? A lot. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Psalm 68.5, speaking of God, he is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. And this beautiful. If we are going to be his image bearers, we should reflect his character and his nature here on earth as it is in heaven. And what does the character of God look like? God sets the lonely in families. That's why we've partnered with Foster the Bay, and many of you are already a part of this. Um, Our church has a culture of adoption and fostering. Make no mistake about it, it's difficult, it's hard. It's very difficult, but it's one of those things. Look, at the end of, at the end of all of our lives, we're probably going to regret a lot of stuff. There's going to be some things we won't regret. You're not going to regret loving your family. You're not going to regret loving God. You're not going to regret being on church on Sundays. But you're going to regret a lot of times you were selfish. No matter how difficult it is, If you take a child who doesn't know they're loved and you do your best to tell them that they're loved, you're not going to regret that on your deathbed. And what a more holy and sacred task to be given to an image bearer than to help a child learn that they're loved. You can be an image of the Heavenly Father. So... We do these things. We, we want to support them, and we're involved in them. And God may be calling some of you to step into this. Even if the thing, great thing about Foster the Bay, the way, the way it works and how we partner with them is even if you're not called into being a foster parent, you can be a support family to a foster parent. Because it's just like sometimes like the kids, everyone's acting up. Ain't no food coming, kids. Oh, but you have a support family. And they're bringing in and out The third category, I called this unfriended, but what I'd like to talk is about seniors and elderly, and I have to be extremely sensitive here because, um, you know, Pastor Greg Quirk, (laughs) you saw him, he's talking about taking things out of his office, you know, when you start to, he's getting ready, he's getting ready. So I'm not talking about seniors like, because you become a senior technically at 55 or something. Some places will give you, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about when you get that Denny's discount. You know what I'm talking about? Because that, you know, man, that $1.99 Grand Slam was already cheap enough, but I can be out of here for $1.85 plus tip. Let's go. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking almost about the opposite end of foster kids. There are many who are elderly and our seniors who have, in a sense, like, like kids, been abandoned. 
by friends and family, and they don't have anyone to support them. Maybe one person, maybe two people, maybe three people, maybe no people. I'm talking about those people who have no one to care for them, or seniors or elderly. Right now in America, one in three seniors say that they are lonely. Now, I don't know how we got here. I have some ideas. I don't know exactly how we got here as a culture, but somehow aging and death and the elderly, all of that is something that we've not only hit our, hit our eyes from, we, we actually scorn it. So aging is scorned in this culture. Read the Bible. You know what talks about your gray hairs? That's a crown of glory, man. That's a crown of wisdom. Our culture doesn't treat gray hair as a crown of wisdom. It's something to be scorned. It's something to do everything to avoid. Now, I'm, I'm 36, 37. Once you have kids, you lose track. Um, 37, so I'm primed to start having some gray hairs because in past two years, I'm older than 37. It's like you, there's an equation which you fit. It's times two minus 30. Then there's some, some formulas you got to plug in. But it's like when people my age start, oh, no, I'm getting my first gray hair. Do you realize that in most cultures, oh, man, I'm on my way to being the wise tribal chief right now where people would come to you for wisdom and knowledge. And this is where it's going to get really real because even if you're not the one in three seniors who are lonely, you've noticed something. The older you got, the less people cared about your opinion. The older you got, the less people sought out your wisdom. Because our culture is obsessed with youthfulness and that which is new is good and that which is old is bad. So you're just old, you don't get it. That's, that's not how things work anymore. There's nothing new under the sun. It always works the same way. Has different manifestations and, and different, the OS looks different. The user interface looks different. And so what happens is you age and all of a sudden you can feel it like, I feel less relevant. That's because our culture is obsessed with being youthful and we condemn anything old. By the way, it's interesting that the same simultaneous as we lose religion and a Christian understanding of humanity and death, that we fear death all the more. And so that which we fear, we want to run away from. And the older you get, you embody oldness. Like symbolically, but I mean it symbolically and literally. The older you get, you embody oldness. You know what I mean? It's in your skin. It's in your hair. It's in the way you walk. Because last Thanksgiving, you had the grandkids over and you played football for 20 minutes with four-year-olds. And you woke up. <laughs> Every inch of my body is sore. What? I didn't even know I had this muscle. What is going on? You know what I mean. And so you embody it. And our culture doesn't want what you embody. They want youthfulness. Think about it like TV shows. We have an obsession with TV shows where, where people, and in particular, this is interesting, particularly women in their 40s, 50s, and 60s live out their sex lives as if they were still promiscuous in college. And we love it. It's like, that should be sought after. And so we've lost the wisdom of the older. And we fear it. We fear that. 
The church shouldn't be like this. The church should look up to those who have come before them for wisdom and guidance. The fifth commandment in the Bible is to honor your mother and father. Typically, and I've talked about this before, but oftentimes uh, when we talk about the fifth commandment, we use it to teach our, our kids. This is the way I do it. It's the fifth, you know, hey, the, I, t- I tell my daughter that the Ten Commandments aren't in order. The first two are most important, and then you jump to the fifth. That's the next important. So, like, love God, no idolatry, honor your mom and dad. It's very important. It's, the, it's, you know, it's up there. And that's, that's a, certainly what the fifth commandment means, but historically, the literature, the, the Jewish literature we have, leading all the way up to the intertestamental period before Jesus, whenever it talks about the fifth commandment, it's talking about adult children, adults, caring and respecting their parents. So within the fifth commandment is embedded the idea that you better respect, care for, and love your parents as they age. And you get verses like, cursed is the man who disrespects his father and stuff like that. We don't have that in our culture. The church shouldn't be like that. And more importantly, as I said, a third of our population is feeling lonely. And they've done a lot of research on this. For seniors who feel lonely, it's like one of those things where you get, you're more inclined to have everything that's wrong and bad with the world happen to you. So if you're a senior who feels lonely, the symptoms of the common cold hit you harder. You experience the common cold harder when you're lonely. They found, one study found that Seniors who are lonely are 60% more inclined to develop dementia. They did some studies on people coming off of coronary bypass surgery and found that lonely seniors who have the same procedure are five times more likely to die within the first year following that. Being lonely is one of the most horrific things to be. It's one of the most hopeless. And so some of you feel that in the room. You don't have to be a senior to feel lonely. And so the church should be a place for real connection, human connection, image-bearing connection. One of the things that we've done to address this issue with those who are lonely and who are in the category of senior lonely and you're kind of feel abandoned is we've developed what we call microsites to try to bring church to people who can't come to church. We have three right now, one at Wheeler Manor, Sunset Gardens, and then Hollister Whispering Pines. Although I joked around in Hollister today, I was like, Whispering Pines kind of sounds cool and creepy at the same time, I can't decide. <laughs> it's like, it's cool and it's enchanted and magical, but it's like, when you're in a forest and the, you start hearing whispers, get out. <laughs> we are on no one's side. I mean, that's creepy. So why do we do that? Because there are people who would want to be at church today who can't be here because they can't drive, they don't have friends or family to take them to church, and so they just hang out at these places. And additionally, by the way, there's people who come to these who aren't even Christian, but they're, they're so lonely that as long as you'll be their friend, they'll let you tell them the gospel. Do you know, I didn't mention this at the other service, I completely forgot, we had someone come to a microsite who had never ever been to a church service in their entire life. Not one, ever. There they were. Maybe they didn't have anything else to do. Maybe they just saw that there was cookies. I don't know. But they were there. 
and people from this church were ready to introduce themselves and befriend them. We have a meeting on September 29th right after church. You'll hear it announced again, but if, if you feel at all inclined to want to jump in to help out at one of these microsites, currently we're doing the three once a month, uh, but we could use help. Maybe some of you feel, hey, I just want to go and befriend somebody. Maybe some of you um, think you have a teaching gift and you want to maybe participate in the rotation to teaching at these things. Maybe, maybe you just you got a mean cupcake game. Like your cup game, cupcake game is on point. You make good cupcakes. Uh, we need them good cupcakes. They'll point people to the goodness of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. So you make some legit snacks, we could use you. Um, well, that's why we do that. So image bearing means all people have value. Additionally, image bearing means we have a vocation, a job to do. We are supposed to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. He's given us a room, a sphere, the earth, and given us dominion over that. And we should do God's will here. And we know that God has a special heart for those who are hurting and who are broken and who are the last, the lost, the least, the ones easily forgotten. We know God cares about those things. So if we're going to be a church that's doing our Father's business, we have to be about that business as well. And the scriptures speak again and again and again of this. Psalm 82, 3 through 4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? that Bible verse. Let me read that again. It, like, if, you th- if this is your favorite Bible verse, it's you're awesome or you're lying to yourself. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Speaking of God, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Psalm 82, 3 through 4, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. You have a job to do, you're made in his image. Maybe some of you called to get into issues with the unborn. Some of you called to get into this foster care thing. Some of you called to microsite. Janine was making announcements earlier about children's ministry. Image bearing means all of that stuff and so much more. We want you serving in one way or another. So please get on board with that. We're going to pass out communion and the worship team's going to come back up. As we close and I tie everything, to, hopefully tie everything together, I, I want to equal the playing field because I talked about three segments of our culture, unborn, unparented, and, and seniors who are lonely, who are in need of help. But the reason why we care about those in need of help is ground, grounded in the fact that all humanity was in need, was in need of help. We're in need of help. So 
what the cross of Christ says is that every single person, you, me, everyone, we were all dead in our sins, in desperate need of being born again. The cross tells us that we were all orphans, abandoned, and in desperate need of knowing our true heavenly Father. The cross says that we weren't just unfriended, but that in fact we were enemies of God. So what does the cross of Christ do? The cross says that God in his infinite mercy can send his spirit to make you born again. And when his spirit comes inside of you, he adopts you. You are no longer an orphan, you are brought into the father's house. And lastly, more than just make you his friend, he makes you family. So what the cross does is it says, we help those who are hurting and needing precisely because God helped all of us who were hurting and needing. And if you want to talk about being vulnerable and the most likely to be oppressed and abused, then you enter into the story of Jesus. God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, does what? He himself identifies with the plight of the human condition to such a degree that he ends up in the most vulnerable and broken of all places. If you ask people in Rome in the first century, what's the one place you don't want to be? And that's nailed to a cross. Want to know how vulnerable and broken that was? Jesus is nailed naked in public to suffer in agony for hours upon a Roman cross. And he does that precisely to do the will of his Father on earth as it is in heaven. The perfect image of God, Jesus the Son. And he does so that you and I can be born again, so that you and I can know our good heavenly Father, and that we can be adopted into his family. And so we extend grace and mercy first and foremost because we were shown grace and mercy. Communion draws us back to this. As we close with this and in song, please stand. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. If you doubt how much you're loved, if you doubt your condition prior to the cross, you go back to this bread and remember that God himself was broken on your behalf. Jesus takes the cup and says, this is my blood shed for you. God didn't stay in heaven. Came, got dirty, nailed to a cross to reconcile us, to adopt us, to bring us into his family. We thank you, Lord. As we close in song, know that one of the primary ways that we image God is in worship. When you worship the Father, you're being conformed to the image of the Son. And as you become more and more like the image of the Son, you can more and more do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. So fix your eyes in worship to Jesus and our good heavenly Father.